Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. We're listening to The Blues by Mary Lou Williams. Our music tonight comes from women who played jazz and were virtuosos on their instruments, as opposed to being only vocalists. Mary Lou Williams on piano, Melba Liston on trombone, and Vi Red on saxophone lend their efforts to our program. And that program is Hillary Clinton, always the wrong kind of woman. Regardless of your politics, regardless of her politics, it's hard to argue that Hillary Clinton hasn't been on the receiving end of a constant and deep misogyny from across the political spectrum, left, right, and center. And when it comes to the media, it's a frozen narrative. Hillary Clinton's negative press is nearly always focused on the ways she's the wrong kind of woman, no matter how woman is defined. My guest tonight for this 90-minute interchange is Susan Bordo author of The Destruction of Hillary Clinton, which, as she'll take pains to point out, is not a book delighting in the demise of the former 2016 and 2008 presidential candidate, the former Secretary of State, the former junior senator from New York, the former First Lady of the United States, the former First Lady of Arkansas, but rather one that details the whirlwind of antagonisms and machinations that led to what must surely be one of the most ignominious defeats in politics at the hands of a reality TV celebrity and real estate mogul and carnival barker whom voters declared more trustworthy than she. We're going to begin with the end, which is to say I've taken the three minutes that closed our conversation and stuck them at the top. And after that, we'll say our proper introductions. And now, always the wrong kind of woman, a conversation with Susan Bordo about Hillary Clinton on Interchange on WFHB. thought that uh, Hillary Clinton was just another version of Al Gore uh, in our politics um, for for the right, you know, for that kind of dichotomous view of the ineffectual um, pasty woman. Um, There is a point that I, I do like to make, which is, you know, I think that you're right about Gore at the level of cultural representation, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but at the level of 
you know, who these people really are, and I right. don't claim to know who they really, really are. Right, but right. But should never, ever forget that Hillary Clinton won 94% of the African-American women's vote, mm-hmm. or that she won overwhelmingly the greater percentage, I think 82%, of the LBGTQ vote, mm-hmm. or that most poor people voted for her. Mm-hmm. So Hillary was making connections with some people. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that Hillary was the aloof, stiff, you know, kind of unable to connect person, I think is is a, uh, a feature of the fact that we think, actually you could say in rather masculine terms, right. you know, the person who's able to stand at a podium and mesmerize a crowd, by shouting out, you know, virtually sound bites, mm-hmm. you know, that's what we see as connection. If you can, you know, mesmerize a crowd and everybody is shouting, yes, yeah. yes, yes, lock her up. Person, <laughs> person who through much more, a much more intimate style of politics has managed to make real concrete connections mm-hmm. within communities. Right. Um, that, so the idea of, of you know, that's where I would say Clinton and Gore really you can't compare them because mm-hmm. though I don't know much about how, for instance, Gore was, you know, with um, particular communities. I do know quite a bit about how Hillary worked within mm-hmm. particular communities, and they didn't find her to be stiff or disconnected right. in this life. Right. No, I wasn't trying to connect them as actual politicians, even or, but just to say as a as a larger sense of how the the um, the represent, representation game had been played yes. in the media, right? So you have Bill Clinton, who is the person you were talking about, right? Who is uh, yep. charismatic? He is the con man, the way that Donald Trump is the con man, the way you you know the way we understand that charismatic leader. He's not quite, um, he's not quite that horrifying. Uh, totalitarian <laughs> il duce. Hard to be as horrifying. You're right, right? So he's not quite that way, but he is he is the edge of that in America, right? The 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 P. T. Barnum, you know, circus leader yeah, kind of person. German. Yeah, this is what we 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 still believe is important to have. Uh, and that, that does sort of tar everything that we talk about in politics. It, what are you are you leading the people? You know, um, and yeah. so, so to me, Gore is on the heels of that character is nowhere near Bill Clinton, whether he's a better or worse or that's terrible politician, he just fit that space. And to me, I think that that's where Hillary Clinton fell post Obama. At this point, yeah, no, I think you're right. I think at this point, that's right. where she fell. Right. That's I don't it. Think yeah, she, right. Yeah. I don't think she fell there in 2008. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She certainly didn't fall there when she was first lady. Susan Bordeaux, welcome to Interchange. Hi, it's great to be here, Doug. I thought we could start actually with a little bit about you, if you don't mind. Um, So give us a little background about yourself, why anyone would think it's important to read what Susan Bordeaux uh, has to say about Hillary Clinton. Oh my gosh, this is a difficult one, actually, because my background is, is kind of an odd one. Usually people are in one field and they kind of stick with it and people recognize what they were the work they do is belonging to that field. But I started out with a PhD in philosophy. But my real passion from childhood on has been popular culture. Mm -hmm. The thing was when I 
started out as an academic, popular culture was not yet something that one was allowed to do as an academic. It wasn't regarded. I mean, now, of course, everybody is is writing stories about their favorite TV shows. Right. Sorry, writing academic pieces about their favorite TV shows. And it's very hip to be into popular culture. But when I was going through graduate school, this was just a, a, a dot on the horizon. But as soon as I was able to, after I got my first job, I began to segue into those areas that I was truly most interested in. And uh, they initially almost always had to do with contemporary culture and the way that men and women in particular and their bodies in particular were represented in popular culture. This is something that's always engaged me. Um, And I've always also been very interested, and I guess this is a kind of residue, you could say, from my philosophical training, I've also always been interested in the way that our ideas about what constitutes truth and evidence and reality have changed over the years. Mm-hmm. And when I started to follow the election, I've been interested in Hillary Clinton for a long, long time, um, ever since she really entered the public scene. But I hadn't thought about writing a book about her. My last book was about Anne Boleyn and the history of how she's been represented over the last 500 years. Mm. Um, And what I had thought to do, it was a sort of, you know, a temporary respite from looking at the problems of contemporary culture. Mm -hmm. And what I had thought to do after that was to write a book actually about the decline of respect for fact Mm. and the ascendancy of image and narrative in contemporary culture. And that's the book that I was planning to write as I started to follow the the primary and the pre-primary almost on a daily basis, just out of my own interest. And I found myself blogging about it and writing pieces about it and Facebook, uh, little, you know, Facebook notes here and there. And I realized that my two interests were coming together very powerfully. Hmm. My interest in, you could say, the way men and women are represented through media of various sorts, both old-fashioned media and newfangled media, and also the gradual um, disappearance of a respect for fact and evidence. They seem to be coming together. And that's what really got me into shifting the focus of the book um, to the election, because I saw more and more of this happening in the representation of Hillary Clinton. My guest tonight is Susan Bordeaux, author of the 1993 book Unbearable Weight, about the pressures of body type expectations on women and girls, and most recently an analysis of media tropes that frame Hillary Clinton as forever the wrong kind of woman. It's called The Destruction of Hillary Clinton. You're an academic, right? You're a professor at uh, the University of Kentucky? Yeah, I'm a refugee academic. I'm an escaped academic. I, I am an academic by default. Um, you know, when I was, when I was, I'd always wanted to be a writer. 
Mm-hmm. But I come from a lower middle class family, working class family, and there was never any money. And um, I knew that uh, I need to make a living. And it was always on my mind, what am I going to do to make a living? And in those days, and we're going back now, you know, I'm quite old. I'm as old as Hillary <laughs> and and Trump. Uh it was really a risky business to throw your hat into the writing business. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't see how I could support myself. Mm. And I thought, well, I really like to read. I really like to write. I like to communicate with people. I'll teach. Mm-hmm. That's what got me into academia. But my And I love teaching. I love my students. Um, I've always loved teaching. But my real soul passion has been writing. Mm. So, you know, even as an academic, even as a very young academic, I was doing movie reviews on the side, and my writing was gradually but very definitely becoming more oriented toward a general audience. Mm. That's what I really love to do. Mm. So, yes, I'm an academic, but, uh, you know, in a way it's not, uh, you know, there's some people who go into academia and really what they want to do is stand in front of a stage and lecture. Mm-hmm. That's never been my desire. Mm. You know, the, the, the passion has been to communicate. And it's through writing that I feel um, most uh, grounded in the world mm. when I communicate in that way. Now, you had uh, at least uh, one of your books. I know uh, I'm blanking on the name right now, but it came out in 1994, I think. And uh, I think, as far as I can tell, it's, it's widely praised as a... Unbearable weight. Yeah, yes. a, a fairly uh, highly praised book that... Uh, is feminist as well? Is that that's generally yes. its take, right? So um, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, it's a big part of my biography. I mean, I came um, into adulthood uh, just at the time I was born in forty-seven. You know, and the first stirrings of the women's movement were in the mid to late sixties. Um, and so I came into my young adulthood just as that was happening. And it was very a great influence on my life hmm. and has remained so. And yeah, the, the Unbearable Weight book was um, very important for me because it was really the first writing that I had done that put together my personal interests and also to some extent my own autobiography, although I don't talk about it in that book. Hmm. Um, with uh, the with with in the context of a book that academics could appreciate, but that also crossed over surprisingly to me. Actually, that was the great delightful surprise of that book. Um, I had thought that I was writing a book that would have mostly appeal to academics, and it has done very well in academia. It's it's translated, it's reprinted, it's assigned in classes, but it's also crossed over. Mm. to, um, you know, a more general readership of women who, for whom the problems that it addresses, I was one of the first people to address certain problems, problems of body image and weight, diet, eating disorders, and to do it in a way that was not from the perspective of a clinician, mm-hmm. but from the perspective of someone who shared these issues, mm-hmm. who was a part of the culture. And I think that... Um, that was what enabled the book, though it's still written in quite a dense style, mm-hmm. to reach a lot of young women who felt that they were understood. Mm. You know, from that moment on, I was never again going to write 
a book that didn't have that audience in mind, Mm, whether it was an audience of women or an audience of men Mm -hmm. that didn't have a more general audience Mm, in mind. You know, I was hooked on Mm. that sense of having communicated outside a world of scholars. Right, right, right. So that's 94. You say you sort of came of age in that second wave space and you published in, I guess, what we call the third wave space. Is that, does that characterize yeah, it somewhat? Yeah, and, and the book has been, the third waivers have cited it as one of theirs and second waivers have cited it as one of theirs. Mm. I think the book really does kind of, as I discovered, you, know, you never really know where your book is going to fit Right. Until after it's out there. Right. Um, and, you know, as I discovered, the book uh, had resonance both for second waivers and for third waivers, because in a way, I'm someone who has uh, grown up in the second wave. Mm-hmm. But because I've always been very much in touch with my students, has been influenced by changes in feminism and changes in the way my students have seen the world. Mm-hmm. It's time for a break. We're listening to Vi Red's Now's the Time off of the 1962 album Bird Call. More with Susan Bordeaux on the destruction of Hillary Clinton when Interchange returns on WFHB. You've heard it every way, a dog will have his day. But when it comes to whaling, dogs ain't got a thing to say. So they can do the waiting, cause I ain't hesitating. The future's round the corner, so for now I'm gonna play. Now's the time to whale. Not later, but right now's the time. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. My guest tonight is Susan Bordeaux, author of the 1993 book Unbearable Weight, about the pressures of body type expectations on women and girls, and most recently an analysis of media tropes that frame Hillary Clinton as forever the wrong kind of woman. It's called The Destruction of Hillary Clinton. 
so we're here to discuss another book of yours, obviously, The Destruction of Hillary Clinton. Would you mind characterizing your pro- your book project, uh, doing a, a little bit of a, a brief summary of what it, what your intentions were? Yes, I'd love to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think I'll start by saying what my intentions were not, because okay. I discovered sure. that some people have misunderstood the title of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I've learned from Facebook and Twitter that some people who are very much um, admirers of Hillary Clinton, who are very much Hillary supporters during the election, think that the book falls into the same category as Shattered and other books that are mostly critical of Hillary. Hmm. And they, they read the title, The Destruction of Hillary Clinton, as maybe celebrating her hmm. destruction, <laughs> or if not celebrating it, then claiming that she's destroyed. And, you know, some people just can't bear the thought of buying a book that seems to say that Hillary has been destroyed. Mm. Um, I actually did want a subtitle. I was going to say, you needed a subtitle then, yeah. Well, I'm still arguing for it. For I had the, for a, the paperback? I have a wonderful, I'll preface what I'm about to say by saying that I have wonderful publishers. Mm-hmm. Melville House has been terrific. But we did lock horns over two things. One was the need for a subtitle. And the other was the picture of Hillary on the cover. Mm. And I argued for weeks about the need for a subtitle and for a less dejected-looking picture. But they felt it was very dramatic, the Mm. way it was. And um, ultimately, I had to go along with it. It was either that or say, sorry, I'm breaking my contract. Mm. You know, and here I had a book written and was working with wonderful editors, and I decided, well, you know, let's let's do this. And uh, what I found is that, in many ways, my instincts were right. Mm. And I'm going to fight for a change in the paperback when it comes out. Well, it's interesting <laughs> to think about, obviously, as someone who, who pays attention to visual images and, and media construction. Uh, the book does, uh, it does present a stark, intentional you know, idea yes. on it, I suppose. And maybe, maybe you're right. To, I didn't think about it. I mean, I actually have a copy of the book in front of me and, and it is, you know, black cover. Mm-hmm. It's very stark. Uh, the destruction of Hillary Clinton is up above and to the left of the downward looking Hillary Clinton, who as usual quaffed well, uh, yes. nice earrings, a beautiful purple and black, uh, pantsuit, I would assume. And, but a little, a little bit of a smile on her face still. Yeah, I mean, and what I meant, you know, I, I like the title very mm-hmm. much. Okay. Um, I, because what I want to suggest was she didn't just lose, mm-hmm. right? right? She didn't just lose. She was assaulted mm-hmm. by a whole variety of sources, left, right, center, media, GOP, you know, uh, people within the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. Um that this was a real you know, war, you could say, you know, although not anything as consciously plotted as a war against her. And that's what I wanted destruction to convey. And mm-hmm. I think with the right subtitle, maybe some of your listeners can come up with one <laughs> to, for me to sell to the press with the right subtitle, that that main title would work very well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it needs that clarifying subtitle. Yeah, I think that nowadays we've got this tendency to think in terms of, you know, what's the one thing that brought her down? 
you know, some people might say the one thing was Comey. And then there are authors like Shattered who would say it was the incompetence of her campaign or her arrogance. And there's a lot of Hillary blaming going on. There's a lot of unidimensional thinking going on. And what I tried to do in the book is to suggest that um, this was a real multi-pronged set of difficulties that she faced. Mm -hmm. And that the remarkable thing is, actually, that um, she came through almost winning despite them. Yeah. You know, with three million more popular votes than Trump. Yeah. You know, so I think that this current narrative, which is very Hillary blaming, you know, is that she dragged the Democratic Party down. She didn't have a message. She didn't speak to the white working class male. To me, this really is, um, you know, whatever you think of Hillary, as someone who likes to analyze the causes of things, to me, it's just way too simplistic mm -hmm. to throw it on Hillary. And I wanted to make sure that, at least for posterity, um, a different narrative was being told. And, mm. and that's really what motivated the book. My guest tonight is Susan Bordeaux, author of the 1993 book Unbearable Weight, about the pressures of body type expectations on women and girls, and most recently an analysis of media tropes that frame Hillary Clinton as forever the wrong kind of woman. It's called The Destruction of Hillary Clinton. Let's stick a little bit with you and Hillary in the sense of um, your uh, age similarity, your coming of age. Yeah, we are, we are uh, of exactly the same generation, very different backgrounds, mm -hmm. very different backgrounds. You know, as I mentioned, you know, I come from a working class, uh, Northeastern Jewish family. My background is much more like Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, she was solidly middle class, you know, grew up with what I would consider to be quite a bit of privilege, you mm -hmm. know, from my point of view, mm -hmm. I realized she was not rich by any means. Um, but at a certain point, her problems and mine began to intersect mm. precisely because we were women and in our own separate domains, hers, of course, much bigger than mine. Mm -hmm. We were facing a lot of the same challenges. Um, it was such a time of transformation, and we had grown up with you know, the post-war propaganda machine, mm -hmm. which you know tried to suggest to women that their true role in life was not continuing in the office or riveting or steel making or doing any of the jobs that they had done during World War II but to get back to the role of wife and mother. Mm -hmm. And everything around us was advertising that, you right. know, advertising uh, appliances and mm -hmm. advertising, you know, beautiful drapery and just getting women reinvested in the idea of being wonderful wives and mothers. And we grew up with a teenage version of that. Mm. You know, so that you had the the teenage version was like Gidget, right, right, you know, right, right. Gidget and Annette Funicello, mm -hmm. you know, these very cuddly, curvy, seemingly made for having babies mm -hmm. girls who were kind of a little feisty, 
you know, they had a little bit of spunk. Right, right, right. And that appealed to us. Um, but at the same time, their lives were all about being perky and nice and, right. you know, getting themselves a boy. Well, we grew up with that message. And uh, I was profoundly affected by it. I mean, I was constantly worried about my looks and whether I would ever have a boyfriend and the whole schmear. Um, and then round about 1964 things started to change very dramatically. Mm -hmm. And the culture began to produce very different images of what was appealing and attractive in women, much more images, you know, Joan Baez and Mary Travers and, you know, women who were invested in left-wing politics and who were long and tall and not necessarily busty and, you know, domestic looking, but had long straight hair something that I craved desperately and could only get with an iron. And, uh, you know, it all changed on us. So there was this sense of having to navigate between two really different ideas of what was expected from a woman. Hillary had to navigate that. Mm -hmm. I, in my own little world, had to navigate that. I think my biggest, one of my biggest uh, interests in the book is the way in which women constantly find themselves having to walk, you know, what I think of as tight ropes mm -hmm. or deal with double binds in which they're expected to be not so much all things at once, but they're asked in some circumstances to be one kind of thing. And then if they go a little too far, they're criticized. Yeah. Yeah. So they go over in the other direction and then they're criticized for that. And there's this very narrow road that one has to walk. Mm -hmm. And for an ambitious woman, it's particularly difficult because in order to, you need to be ambitious mm -hmm. in order to develop whatever skills you need in order to make it in a real public world, mm. right? Mm -hmm. But by the same time, if you're seen as ambitious, right, right. There's a certain kind of public resentment. You know, you're at, you're stepping out of place. Yeah, and you have, to, you have to find out how to mitigate that. How to, and yeah. Hillary has just constantly had to deal with mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. And then to, on top of that, she's had to deal with the fact that ideas about men and women continue to change. Right, right, right. So right. she would have just managed to find the sweet spot mm -hmm. of one particular era, <laughs> and it was already changing. Right. It's time for another break. This time we'll hear from jazz trombonist Melba Liston playing You Don't Say, off of 1958's Melba Liston and Her Bones. When we come back, we'll explore the feminist generation gap that might have confounded the chances for Hillary Clinton to be the first woman in the White House. Stay with us for more Interchange on WFHB. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. My guest is author and University of Kentucky professor Susan Bordeaux. She's written an analysis of Hillary Clinton's loss to Donald Trump called The Destruction of Hillary Clinton. In this segment, we'll take a look at the feminist generation gap, one in which many millennial women may have turned away from a woman that reminded them too much of their mother. interested me obviously as as I've asked you these questions is as much the the generation gap you talk about and I know there are lots of other things to talk about and we'll get to them um, but but it was it was interesting to me uh, especially as a uh, as a man and a younger man I'm um, um, closing in on 50 myself so uh, I kind of missed the the excitement of the 60s and fell into the mm-hmm. 80s for the most part and and so I'm having to learn about a lot of these things you know in retrospect so when I talk about 70s uh, or the second wave feminism for me this is because I just I just read Kate Millett's Sexual Politics, um, or right. you know you you come back to these things and you're like oh that that must have been really really weird to to come <laughs> out of you know to come out of that place where where women again are are pushed into domesticity especially with commercial products especially with advertising uh, to to even have Eleanor Roosevelt saying please don't just go buy things you know and you can do more than than be domestic, but that have the overwhelming quality of, of commercial life be thrust into the woman as a homemaker again. Uh, right. And then to have to, and then, uh, then as I say, uh, you know, be smacked with the, I guess, the cultural sexual revolution in, in, as well as war protest and things of this nature. And, and, um, you know, it's just fascinating to me to imagine coming out of that as, as you had to, as Hillary Clinton had to, and, and to, to try to understand the generation gap from, you know, what made, what made you who you are, what made Hillary Clinton who she was uh, or is as a woman, and then to have to run smack into a culture that is struggling in a very different way 
to define yes. itself also as feminist, also as uh, yes. you know social, you know a, so, a socialist agenda in many ways, and yes. struggling very hard to define itself. And as you say, Hillary Clinton going from feeling and being radically feminist in some sense to being establishment feminist, and, and that's the generation gap that you talk mm. about. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it's it's both fascinating and very frustrating. It's frustrating on the national level. Um, on the personal level, it's been fascinating because these are my students mm-hmm. and I've learned a huge amount from them. And when we're face to face, we are just it's just intriguing and mutually informative. We learn so much from each other about the differences in our experiences it's exciting. And, you know, I, I can't help but think that that might have happened, that conversation might have happened on the national level without a Bernie Sanders. Mm. Because I think Bernie Sanders um, provided an alternative to younger women. And, of course, I'm generalizing here because plenty of millennial women were Hillary supporters. Right. Um, but just, you know, to put them aside for a moment, that for those women who were, um, did feel that generation gap, felt estranged from my generation, felt estranged from Hillary, wanted something different, um, that there could have been some mutual understanding and a place of greater unity had this other person come along, right? who offered something really in a way that in in a much more simpler, exciting, uncomplicated way gave them the answers. Mm. And, you know, I've been called condescending when I say this. You know, the the, um, frustration for me, of course, is that, you know, as a teacher, I don't think I've ever had a student who's thought of me as condescending. Mm -hmm. It's just not the way I teach. But as a writer, because there isn't that opportunity for face-to-face, you know, here's what I meant. I didn't mean that. Right. You know, and Mm -hmm. then here's what I think. And what do you think about that? You don't get that kind of back and forth that there's been um, the fact that I was critical of Bernie and his campaign came across to his younger female supporters as condescension towards them. Mm-hmm. Like, how could you vote for a man? <laughs> how could you go against a female and vote for a man? I, that's what they thought we were saying. Right, and right. I don't know anybody who was saying that. Mm-hmm, I mean, right. yeah, I really, truly do not know a single Hillary supporter who believed that um, the woman who didn't support a woman was going to go to hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really, I mean, that's just the God's honest truth. Mm-hmm. Um, people, you know, wanted her. It was an enormous uh, plus that she was a woman mm-hmm. for those of us who were female and, or for men who were ready for a female candidate. But, I mean, this was a tremendously qualified woman. I don't have to go into the whole litany of her accomplishments and her experience and everything that was appealing about her. Um, For instance, I never would have supported anybody like Le Pen, Mm -hmm. you know, just because she was a woman. Um, And Hillary supporters certainly had lots of negative things to say about Carly Fiorino. Mm -hmm. She was a woman. Mm Um, you know, so this business, I think of it as a real red herring, this mm. business that, you know, well, 
they want me to vote for her just because she's a woman. No, we just wanted to be able to try to communicate to you, mm. you know, what her actual politics were like. Her mm. actual politics were being so caricatured right. all the time. Um, but if you tried to respond by pointing to the nuance or the complexities, really it was very difficult to communicate that because people became, and I get it, I do, I get it, people became sort of bonded to Sanders. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. people, you know, became, there's still, even now, mm-hmm. a, a whole huge group of people who just, he is like a god to them mm. and can do no wrong. And it was very difficult to to um, to communicate, to have a real interchange with people who felt that way. My guest tonight is Susan Bordeaux, author of the 1993 book Unbearable Weight, about the pressures of body type expectations on women and girls, and most recently an analysis of media tropes that frame Hillary Clinton as forever the wrong kind of woman. It's called The Destruction of Hillary Clinton. It strikes me as interesting uh, on on obviously many levels that you know this 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 particular election cycle has been such a strange one and in in so many ways as you say so frustrating and confusing and disheartening and you know still watching and still hearing the the constant bickering about you know who who you should support and which which one is more progressive, which one would be more feminist, et cetera. So you know all these things become again right. they diffuse a kind of you know I guess reality. They diffuse the pra- the practical aspects of what we're looking at now. Um, yeah. But uh, you know in some ways I I often thought Bernie Sanders became uh, again a, a a candidate to um, to sort of spoil for the sexists in some sense. You know where where you could be for Bernie as a man and be feminist while issuing the woman who is too much like our current male politicians. Yes. Um, Yeah. I, I, I hear exactly what you're saying. (laughs) And uh, that's of course, uh, ironic, Mm -hmm. bitterly ironic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, For a lot of reasons. Um, You know, one of them having to do not with Hillary, but having to do with Bernie, because women's issues have never been extremely high on his list of priorities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm perfectly willing to grant that, you know, he is not an anti-feminist, but for him to claim superior feminist credentials mm-hmm. to Hillary's, it just, you know, it's it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. And yet plenty of his supporters will say that. Sure, sure. Um, not aware very much at all, and here's where I get criticized for being condescending, but, you know, I'm a teacher, Mm -hmm. you know, I believe in learning (laughs) things, and, you know, not being aware of the history, you know, they don't really know what the history of, and why should they know? They're Mm -hmm. not taught it. No, 
No. Well, it's the, it's the big part of the biggest part of the book, I suppose, is this fact, right? Is the idea of knowing and how to know. You talked about this in, in the beginning, you, your own interest in understanding a kind of epistemology of modern culture in some ways. How do we come to know these things as we're barraged with video imagery, uh, constant Facebook, Twitter feeds, constant noise um, from various factions and tribes and, and, and a constant... Uh, narrative that runs and seems to grab hold is what we all, not all of us, I suppose, but we do tend to generally then become kind of binary in our thinking. We will fit into mm. a particular narrative and stick with it because it, it's hard to do much else. There's so much going on. And, and when you talk about trying to discover truth or fact, or uh, and then when you discover truth and fact, you also find that it is still complicated. That, yes. that the choices Hillary Clinton made in Arkansas, the choices she made by being a, a corporate lawyer, the choices she made by being in the Children's Defense Fund, or I think that's right. The, the, is that right? The Marianne? Yes. Adam, yeah. yes. Uh, the, so you, you, there are many ways to praise her. There are many, many ways to denigrate that politics. There, you, know, you just get stuck in trying to discern what it is that is the thing that you should like before, you know, when you're going to choose yeah. a candidate, right? And I, uh, I yeah, go ahead, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say to support what you were saying that um, what doesn't help that either is the fact that the media mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. does not present complexity as something one has to go through before you make a choice. Sure. You know, the media presents such a narrativized, stuck in various narratives, as you alluded to yourself, mm-hmm. world, that um, it becomes very difficult to sort anything out. You know, I think there, there. I don't want to romanticize the, mm-hmm. you know, the press of the past, but there was a virtue to um, print journalism mm-hmm. where, you know, which required one to read. And to think about <laughs> what you read, if only in terms of putting the different sentences together in an order that would make sense. Right, right, right. And we're getting it kind of fed directly to us now. And we're getting it fed. I mean, it's not just that it's simplistic. It's that that there is this kind of phony ideal of objectivity. Right, right, right. That, you know, what objectivity is, you know, if you present something about one person, you have to present it about another. So we got this, yeah, Trump is a, an inveterate liar, but what about those emails? Right, right, right. right. Balance, and, right. Exactly. <laughs> right. And what that does is it doesn't really help people to sort out anything at all. It just gives them some stuff to put into their preconceived pockets. Right. We've come upon another break. Our music will be jazz pianist Mary Lou Williams' It Ain't Necessarily So, off of the 1964 album Black Christ of the Andes. When we return, we'll hear from Susan Bordeaux about FBI Director James Comey's part in the destruction of Hillary Clinton. Stay with us.
Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our topic tonight is the destruction of Hillary Clinton, Susan Bordo's book just out from Melville House. In this segment, we'll look at the so-called email scandal, which turned out to only prove Hillary Clinton acted appropriately and in a like manner to her predecessor, Secretaries of State. And FBI Director James Comey himself said so. And we'll excerpt a bit of congressional testimony as evidence. to to and and we should go into obviously the emails are important comey is uh, um, as you say whether whether he is uh, an actor who who is agent in making these decisions or whether he was uh, a part of something larger is hard to maybe discern but the choices made by comey to reveal investigations to investigate and then discovering there's nothing there but uh you know there's still smoke and we're going to keep the smoke rolling um is a big part of this issue with media bias as well or or media in um media interest it might not be biased but it's constant and if it's a story we're going to keep floating it but your point your point as it as it moves into that media world is that that it doesn't move off of hillary clinton as fictional narrative hillary clinton as archetype you know hillary clinton as as the woman we're going to hate because she is female power in this version um and that fits the narrative and and the various functions of that narrative untrustworthy as you say um um a victim victim blamer herself so she becomes a, a proponent of of male patriarchy and 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 helping her husband all these things uh are frozen in that media <laughs> narrative and so the narrative just rolls on and it's irrelevant what's fed into it in some ways as long as the narrative can be can be maintained that that is so i love the the fact that you use the word frozen because that's exactly right mm-hmm. i think that the email stuff is a really great example of that because um and i'm still frustrated by this one fact we had this narrative going and even when the facts were right there to dispute it it got no attention whatsoever, right. and Let, it continues. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. Let's, let's give it. Uh, let's yeah, do, do some work for me and and actually give it some flesh. Uh, the the email. Yeah. Uh, give, give us I the email dilemma to. and then work work through your Comey chapters. Yeah, I would love to because you know this. You know, no matter how many times I'm interviewed and how many times I've written up ads and mm-hmm. shown the film clips when I've done book readings. You know, not, this has never been something the media has seemingly even noticed. Right. Um, you know, the book has a chapter, and I won't go through all the steps, but essentially it's a, it's a series of, it breaks the email, so-called scandal, mm-hmm. into a series of moments when the media made certain moves that were not entirely legitimate. Right. But that helped to solidify, to freeze the narrative that Clinton lied. And why wouldn't she simply fess up? Right. Well, what's the what's the what's the um, what's the dilemma in the first place? Uh, So why why are we investigating emails, Hillary Clinton's emails as as Secretary of State? Well, the the uh, original 
it wasn't so much a dilemma to be, mm-hmm. to begin with. It was a discovery, mm. you know, in the Benghazi mm-hmm. committee when they were asking for some emails mm. that she had had this private server. Mm-hmm. So you, you also point out that Benghazi serves as something like Whitewater. Exactly. Mm-hmm. There is this really typical pattern mm-hmm. with um, investigations into the Clintons. And we may see it now with the investigation into Russia. Mm-hmm. Where you you start out with one thing. I think that's what Donald Trump is afraid of, mm-hmm. right? You yeah, know, why sure, is he so sure. afraid of? Why is he so afraid of Flynn right. being investigated? Right. It isn't because he's a good guy. <laughs> he's afraid of where it's going to lead. Mm-hmm. And with the Clintons, it has just been a uh, my God. I mean, you start out with Whitewater, they get nowhere with Whitewater. But in the course of Whitewater. They are, Ken Starr asks to have the thing enlarged to mm-hmm. include an investigation of Paula Jones, right, right. and the harassment charges. Mm-hmm. And in the course of that, they discover the Monica Lewinsky thing mm-hmm. and hit pay dirt right. because they get Bill Clinton to perjure himself. Mm-hmm. And then they're able to impeach him. You know, and in a certain sense, I mean, Whitewater had nothing to do with what ultimately led to Bill Clinton's almost impeachment. Mm-hmm. He was impeached by the House, didn't get, make it through the Senate. Same thing has happened with Hillary. You start out with Benghazi and try as hard as Trey Gowdy and the others tried. <laughs> they simply could get nowhere with it. The most they got out of it was some sound bites. Mm-hmm. You know, that famous sound bite, what difference does it make? which they lifted out of context and used to try to create the idea that she didn't care about the victims of Benghazi. Mm -hmm. But they never were able to pin any irresponsible action on her. But what it did lead to was this email investigation. My guest tonight is Susan Bordo, author of the 1993 book Unbearable Weight, about the pressures of body type expectations on women and girls, and most recently an analysis of media tropes that frame Hillary Clinton as forever the wrong kind of woman. It's called The Destruction of Hillary Clinton. I mean, and I do ultimately want to get to the one big thing mm-hmm. that hasn't been seen the light of day. So I don't want to go into all mm-hmm. the different sure, steps. Sure. But um, one big fact is that the rules about using private email, you, you know, sending uh, classified material on a private email system changed after Clinton left office. Right. Right. Now, how many people really know No that? one, no one. So you point out no that one, yeah, no. Colin Powell operated under these particular rules yeah. as well and had yeah. his own server as well and, in fact, didn't turn over emails. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I mean, they, they changed the rules. Right, right. Um, and made them much stricter. The other thing that never came out, Rachel Maddow tried to bring it out, but it never caught on, was that the whole State Department was just a chaotic mess Mm -hmm. in terms of its record keeping and its email systems. Um, And when the first explorations into her emails went on, the Justice Department carried on an investigation, their final conclusion was, it's the State Department that's a mess. Mm -hmm. We can't find anything that Hillary did particularly wrong. The State Department was a mess. So that was the second big 
you know, non, um, non news right, right. <laughs> that would have been so important. In the meantime, people are begging Hillary, why won't you get down on your knees mm-hmm. and apologize? We need contrition, more contrition. And she's resisting, not because, you know, I truly believe she resisted doing that because she truly believed and still believed she did nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. And that leads me to the biggest point. She didn't do anything wrong. And Comey himself admitted that. Mm -hmm. Not in his first announcement, when he left people with the impression that although she had gotten off in terms of criminal charges, she had nonetheless behaved very carelessly. Recklessly, too, yeah. Mm -hmm. Recklessly, Mm -hmm. exactly. But when she was brought before Congress, because both the Republicans and the Democrats were not happy with what happened with Comey. Mm -hmm. The Democrats weren't happy with that business about carelessness. The Republicans, though, weren't happy with the fact that she hadn't been indicted. Right. So he was brought before more intensive questioning. And in the course of that intensive questioning, there was a very crucial moment when Matt Cartwright took the handbook of State Department regulations and he held them up and he said, all right, you were asked about uh, markings on a few documents. I have the manual here, marking classified national security information, and I don't think you were given a full chance to talk about those three documents with the little C's on them. Were they properly documented? Were they properly marked according to the manual? No. According to the manual, and I ask unanimous consent to enter this into the record, Mr. Chairman. Without objection, sort of. According to the manual, if you're going to classify something, there has to be a header on the on the document, right? Correct. Was there a header on the three documents that we've discussed today that had the little C in the in the text someplace? No, there were three emails. The C was in the body in the text, but there was no header on the email or in the text. So if Secretary Clinton really were an expert at what's classified and what's not classified, and we're following the manual, the absence of a header would tell her immediately that those three documents were not classified. Am I correct in that? That would be a reasonable inference. All right. I thank you for your testimony, Director. I yield back. So, to me, this was like a, a, a you know, bombshell moment. Right, right, right. You know, yeah. and I, I expected Comey to appear, you know, on the news later and say, I really want to correct what I said before. Mm-hmm. Um, or at the very least, I expected some investigative reporters to get on it. Right. And to this day, people still believe she lied about her emails. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And was careless. Right. What also is important, there were three emails that that were being talked about at that point, right? Three emails with a little bit you see in the body of the text that might have been uh, confidential or whatnot, might have indicated confidentiality or classified nature. Three emails. It was was kind of a two-step. First, we had Elijah coming saying, we're only talking about three emails, right? Three emails, yeah. Out of how many thousands or hundreds of thousands? Yeah, yeah. Um, and moreover, we're talking about a tiny C in the body of the email. And they don't, and they don't have headers on them. So. And they don't yeah. have headers yeah. on them. Melba Liston takes us into our next break in this 90-minute interchange about the destruction of Hillary Clinton. This is The Dark Before the Dawn. 
Stay with us for more from author and scholar Susan Bordo when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show tonight is Hillary Clinton, Always the Wrong Kind of Woman. My guest is author Susan Bordo. She's written a book, The Destruction of Hillary Clinton. And in this segment, we'll explore the way the media has consistently painted candidate Clinton in the most derogatory anti-woman tropes available. It's, it's pretty that's to me that's just the fascinating thing about the book is the continual focus on on media representation you know which is I think you're you're obviously you're you're saying this is a in some sense um, uh, a person who is a woman and the deep misogyny of our culture is one giant strike against her the second uh, is made maybe these are tools to use against or within that misogynistic framework right how can we manipulate the these particular facts and no one will call us out on them and it's a, it's pretty impressive when you set it aside or set it next to the the clear misogyny of Donald Trump Yes. To say this is a woman who has clearly been hurt by misogyny, uh, going against a man who is clearly misogynist, and a and the 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 voting public that's going to vote for Donald Trump must have some agreement in that particular way to view the world. Yeah, and and I would uh, and and I hope I make this clear in the book. I would distinguish between what the media did and what Trump did. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, unlike Trump, I do not think that the media is out to get anyone Mm -hmm. consciously, or is the purveyor of fake news. I mean, there are people who for certain have disseminated fake news, but not the mainstream media. 
I think largely they're doing what they think is their job. Mm -hmm. But the rules for their job have changed over time. And there's this crazy notion of false equivalences. And then they get hooked on narratives that are popular and that will keep people going. And, you know, part of what kept that email thing going was it kept alive the illusion of a very tight horse race between Clinton and Trump. And that kept people breathlessly watching television. Right. And so I think that though there certainly is a lot of unconscious sexism, you know, in the media as with anywhere, a lot of it was a certain kind of, um, uh, I don't know exactly how to call it, but the, the, um, a uh, bending to consumer demand mm-hmm. or what they imagined to be consumer demand that led them down paths that unfortunately coincided with more deliberate misogyny on the part of someone like Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, on the one hand, you have the media not necessarily in a, with misogynist consciousness talking about Hillary as you know, lying. Right. All sorts right? of names, too. Which, from All which to any other names. worst thing, right? Uh, bless her, her well, voice. media didn't call her a witch. Yeah, well, but, oh, sure, but, sure, but, sure. Well, we, but, there are coded know. names for these things as well, right? You say someone has a shrill voice. Uh, exactly. They act a particular way. These are code exactly. names for, for being able to use that harsher term. Exactly. Right? Well, and that's, your point is exactly where I was mm. getting to. Mm. That, you know, in their own moderate way, there was a real continuity mm-hmm. between things like, you know, she lied and she's shrill and she's deceptive mm-hmm. and she's hiding things. You know, when she was sick, her pneumonia was like a scandal. Right. Yeah. To the Donald Trumps of the world and lock her up. Right. I mean, there's a continuum there. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Bernie Sanders played into it too mm-hmm. by, you know, basically branding her as the tool of Wall Street. Right. You know, this vision of Hillary as a criminal, corrupt, lying, deceptive, it was really coming at her from all sides. Mm-hmm. My guest tonight is Susan Bordeaux, author of the 1993 book Unbearable Weight, about the pressures of body type expectations on women and girls and most recently an analysis of media tropes that frame Hillary Clinton as forever the wrong kind of woman. It's called The Destruction of Hillary Clinton. As you say before, there's there's no sense of a policy understanding. There's no sense uh, you, you, that we know how anyone will govern, or you know, like, uh, except that you can look at records, right? You can look at governance records. You can look at Hillary Clinton's long record uh, to see where where whether you agree with her or not. Whether you're happy to say it's clear the Clintons come out of a, a, a that sort of false. I'm going to say false. Now it's my own politics here, but a meritocratic world where. Mm-hmm. That to me is is a part of the problem that we we're living in. That you know that we are in a neoliberal moment. That that the Clintons are certainly a part of, um, mm-hmm. and we're struggling with those things again. It's why Bernie Sanders made sense to a lot of people, um, mm-hmm. and she suffered from being a part of that world as well. And we can't disagree. I mean, we can't not let her be a a politician that has to live by who she is, 
right, as a politician. But the, mm-hmm. the biggest part of this is that uh, it seems, it's as you say, it seemed a kind of perfect storm against her being a woman as well, that it just kind of all welled up in, into this one moment. Uh, and, and it was uh, mark, markedly to me against the 2012 election or against you know, what feminism was at a certain point. Uh, you make a, a strong point to, to begin the book. What happened between 2012 and 2016? Where were our interests? You know, where were our focus? Uh, feminism isn't a problem anymore. In 2012, right? Or it wasn't. Yeah, but not that was really yeah, right. striking to me when I when I uh, began to do dig up the news articles on 2012 because my memory mm-hmm. was that we paid an awful lot of attention to, for instance, reproductive issues, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the politicians who said stupid things yeah, like yeah. you can't get pregnant if you get raped. Yeah. Really yeah. got trashed. That was that tro- was it. Troy Aiken is that or not Troy? That Aiken. was Aiken. Somebody was Aiken. Aiken. Trent or I don't know. Then remember. there was um, Murtaugh who said that even if it was you know that even uh, rape was a gift. Yeah, was that here in Indiana? I'm yeah, not yeah. quoting him exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, these people got in terrible trouble, mm-hmm. and and Mitt Romney got in horrible trouble with really a pretty innocent little slur talking about binders full of women. Right, right. <laughs> and these things really got people angry. And we, in 2016, yeah. anyone who raised a gender issue got accused of playing the woman card. Right. Yeah, yeah. So there was, you know, there was a real um, difference in how this gender stuff was dealt with in 2016. 16 from 2012. It's shocking, really. The time, I mean, it's four, less than four years, right? Exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, it's exactly. Right. It's, kind of, it's kind of extraordinary. But yeah. sometimes yeah. things just come together. They crystallize mm-hmm. in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, you know, some of those generational things fed into it. I think the fact that we had a Donald Trump who gave people the slogans. Mm-hmm. You know, because he was the first person to accuse her of playing the woman card. Um, I think also the fact that all kinds of problems in our culture had surfaced between those two elections that were just more grabbing people's attention more, you know, from ISIS to Black Lives Matter. Um, You know, these things rose to the surface and they said, wow, this is really what we have to pay attention to. And of course, they, they had every right to claim our attention. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting to, to, to look at some of, uh, I, uh, I think we talked about earlier, but to, to look a little bit at the uh, response to your book, right, uh, from in particular millennials, which uh, I th- my own children have asked me, what, you know, are, am I a millennial dad? Or, you know, what are you, dad? And <laughs> I, I get so frustrated by these conversations. Um, yeah. I'm not quite sure what they mean. And I've looked, uh, I tried to look up millennial. It's like it ranges from like 1974 to 2000. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm like, who's a millennial? I put it in scare quotes. Right, right. I I never explained why I did that, but I put it in scare quotes in the book because I don't exactly know what it means. It's just a, you know, it's a a brand we've put on something. Yeah, it's a a struggle for me as well. you know, one of the, I guess it's, it, uh, it was Katie Halper and Paste, I think, who, who, who mentioned something that I thought you actually did contend with in your book. She says something to the effect that uh, a candidate that needs to, to earn our support, not just get it because she's a woman. And I thought, you know what your book does, and it doesn't try super hard to do it. It just, I think it's page 100 and to 102 or three that just lists all her accomplishments or many of her accomplishments as 
uh, in public life, as in public service. I was like, you know, that seems like a pretty good way to earn support. Yeah. Is have a record, a record of doing something. What? Yeah. yeah. And it would have been very nice for Bernie Sanders to have pointed that out mm-hmm. to his followers. Sure. Yeah. You well, know, because yeah. they were depending on him. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was the conveyor of knowledge to a right. lot of people. Right. Our final break brings us Mary Lou Williams' Baby Man, off of the 1975 album Free Spirits. When we come back, Susan Bordeaux turns her attention to Bernie Sanders. Stay with us. back to Interchange. For this final segment, Susan Bordeaux considers the notion that Bernie Sanders was a better candidate and a better feminist than Hillary Clinton. Right, well, you know, it's a question that I, I didn't pay attention to at the time, but one, when you get contentious inter-party battles, uh, there's a point where someone becomes vice president, usually, isn't there? <laughs> where I just think, why, what happened that Bernie Sanders didn't become vice presidential candidate? Or, you know, and Tim Kaine, for heaven's sakes. But, um, uh, right. <laughs> you know, but I assume that was not Bernie Sanders' wish. Uh, I don't know if it's Clinton's wish. Uh, you know, I didn't. I don't. I don't really follow the inside. Uh, you know, politics that closely, so I didn't know what, why that wasn't a good ticket, or why it wasn't possible that you could blend the two campaigns. I don't know what their thinking was. 
um, because, um, you know, I'm not an insider journalist. And so I haven't gotten the opportunity to interview mm-hmm. uh, um, Clinton or, you know, any of her any of her staff about this. Uh, but I suspect that um, they in terms of their approaches to working with other people, mm-hmm. they were just too far apart mm. because Bernie is this purity guy, you know, and the, the fact is that, you know, he really doesn't have a very strong record of accomplishment as a senator. Mm. You know, he may have done great things for Vermont, you know, as, as um, at the local level, mm-hmm. but in terms of, you know, his accomplishments at the national level and, what people have said, and I don't know, Bernie, I don't know if this is true, but he certainly projects this, is that he's pretty hard to work with. Mm. You know, he's stubborn and he has his ideas and he's not a compromiser. Right. And he's not, you know, and Hillary is just the opposite. You know, Hillary is always trying to find a way to put two sides that are too extreme together. You know, to listen, to find the place that can achieve, because she's a pragmatist. Mm-hmm. Something of a, can, a moderate of, so, of sorts. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Where you can get the most of what you want, given the realities of the situation. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that perhaps she just realized they couldn't work together very well. Because mm. um, it does, the reason why I say that as opposed to something like, well, she didn't think a socialist you know, once the GOP got a hold of him, mm-hmm. you know, and it's true, you know, if Bernie had been the nominee, once the GOP had gotten a hold of him, God knows mm-hmm. what they would have done to him as a socialist and as a Jew. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they are really good at that kind of junk. So you'd argue that there's no way Bernie wins the way, no way. everybody else is arguing that Bernie wins. No way. Oh, okay. No way. I just, you know, I, and I just say that really on the basis of the fact of, that the, of how effective mm-hmm. The GOP um, oppositional research machinery yeah. is, yeah. and how they're able to exploit people's prejudices mm-hmm. and their hatreds, and you yeah. know, racist and otherwise. And Bernie's got that stuff. Yeah. You know, he's got he's a socialist. They would have turned that into mincemeat. Right. The fact that he's Jewish. I mean, they even created anti. Semitic propaganda to use against Hillary, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she's not even a Jew. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating, yeah. uh, and I I not seen anything written about that. You know, they people like to use polls, right, to say these are the poll numbers on this date. Um, right, but, but this is without, as you say, the particular attention, but by, by the media, who I assume, or even the particular, not even well, we won't even call it the media, the 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 rest of the internet, perhaps, right? That that yeah. the Breitbart's of the of the world, right? Where where you can ah. create all these uh, nodes of misinformation that go out everywhere, um, that would have immediately uh, destroyed uh, Bernie Sanders from that perspective, oh. right? And he would have just, there are things, you know, he's a, a, a virtually of my generation, a little older. Mm-hmm. Um, we all have some stuff in our closets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we grew up during a period in which, you know, there was a sexual revolution going on. Mm-hmm. And Bernie has some very, from the perspective <laughs> of today, troubling little th- pieces he mm-hmm. wrote <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. about rape. Right. 
And, you know, that stuff would have been trotted out. I mean, you know, there's just so much that he he, he really wasn't tested. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't tested. And um, so uh, I forget, you know, we, got, we were talking about something else when I got off on this, you know, Bernie Sanders. Um, we, oh, the vice presidency. Right, right. Um, I think the reason why I think that that was not the reason she didn't go for him is... Um, because she chose someone who I was disappointed. You know, I wanted her to choose mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. um, or maybe Cory Booker. Mm. Um, and uh, I really think she went for someone she could get along with and work with. Mm. Well, and well. though I don't think she, you know, I think she could have worked with Elizabeth Warren or Cory Booker. I think that she had a chemistry with Tim Kaine that she liked. Mm. Okay. My guest tonight is Susan Bordo, author of the 1993 book Unbearable Weight, about the pressures of body type expectations on women and girls, and most recently an analysis of media tropes that frame Hillary Clinton as forever the wrong kind of woman. It's called The Destruction of Hillary Clinton. Part of the problem that we run into here is, again, we have a culture that is constantly now, I mean, I don't know how many, how many more years we can, we can sort of manage under this uh, kind of, you know, 99 and 1% oligarchical world that we're sort of struggling through here and, and coming to, trying to come to terms with in many ways. Uh, so many of us are, are, are working two and three and four jobs. So many of us don't have jobs. So many of us have found jobs that are well below skill level. All these things that have come to the fore uh, certainly helped Bernie Sanders make his pitch work. Um, yes. because they were, it's a true pitch, right? That's part of the issue. That's part of why it works is that we're all struggling with that. And it is true, uh, mm-hmm. that, that seeing the ship of state re- retain its even keel does not do much for many of us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I think that, you know, Bernie, um, the, I guess the way I would put it was what's, what was true was his diet. Well, diagnosis isn't exactly right, the right word. He's calling the problem out forcefully. Um, what was not true, I think, was that the various solutions he had to it were going to be able to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where Clinton's pragmatism, you know, as someone who, you know, again, it's a tiny little world compared to hers. But I remember what I had to do in order to get our gender and women's studies program mm. approved as a department. Uh, it required a lot of dealing with people who believed it had, you know, we had plenty of women studies already. We didn't need a department. And what about men? You know, and these people had to be, I had to explain to them that gender was about men, too. (laughs) And it all had to be done very patiently and very politely and with real pragmatics Mm -hmm. in mind. And I think that um, that's the way Hillary thinks. And even though I might, on the level of pure idealism, fall closer to Bernie Mm -hmm. than Hillary... I feel like, you know, living my 70 years has proven to me that Bernie's solutions were not going to 
get anywhere mm-hmm. in our culture right now. Uh, the other piece of it is, you know, there in terms of certain positions, I think he's shown himself to be a very problematic person. You know, his willingness to back candidates um, who are uh, not supporters of full reproductive rights. To me, what that suggests is that his idea of economic and racial justice is very flawed because mm-hmm. you know, you can't have it. You can't have the idea that I share with him, which is, you know, full economic and racial justice. You can't have that without reproductive freedom for women at all levels. Right at all economic levels. And that's something that he's soft on mm. in a way that um, I think, uh, for me, makes him less of a progressive than her. Hmm. Oh, interesting point. That's our show. We'll close with another from jazz saxophonist Vi Red. I'd rather have a memory than a dream. Thanks to Susan Bordo for sharing her analysis on the tropes that always cast Hillary Clinton as the wrong woman at the wrong time, but that also seem to work just as well on any woman in public office. Susan Bordo is the author of Unbearable Weight, Feminism, Western Culture, and the Body, and most recently, The Destruction of Hillary Clinton, which was published by Melville House. Thanks for listening. A reminder that you can find this program along with other Interchange programs available for podcast at our website, wfhb.org slash news slash interchange. Feel free to send us an email also. Our address is interchange at wfhb.org. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer. Joe Crawford is executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station. WFHB.